You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We thank you that you have broken in your kingdom into this world, and it is advancing. You are making all things new. Thank you that we can be a part of that. Thank you that that newness that you are bringing begins in us. We pray that you would pour out your spirit that you gave at Pentecost. You'd pour out the spirit on us now. That we would be those who don't just hear the word of God and then walk away unchanged, but that we would respond to your word with our whole lives, with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. It's great to see you. It just gets better week by week as I see more and more of your faces. Um, so grateful to be here with you. Welcome if you're visiting today. There's some of you who I'm just meeting uh, for the first time because you've been with us um, online throughout the pandemic and now we're coming in person. And I know there's still uh, many of you online today. And I think there's even some of you down in the sanctuary down there. So um, we're still uh, in separate places, but we're bound together in Christ through the Spirit. So grateful that we can uh, worship this way together. If you've been with us uh, for a few weeks now, we've been looking at one of Paul's least known, yet I think one of his most passionate and engaging letters, uh, and that is 2 Corinthians, in which Paul is appealing passionately to his friends in Corinth to be reconciled to him, even as they have been reconciled to God. And one of the great themes of this letter is this theme of power in weakness, treasure in broken clay pots. Paul, Paul says that just as God's power was most manifest in the weakness of the cross, in the same way God's power in our lives is now most made visible in and through our struggles, our suffering, and our weakness. And so today we're, we're coming to chapter six, and so let's hear God's word as Frank Faust uh, reads to us. As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. We put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance, in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, in truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet unknown, dying, and yet we live on, beaten, and yet not killed, yet always rejoicing, poor, and yet making many rich, having nothing, and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affections from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, 
open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter God. Well, last week we heard an announcement, an amazing announcement that Paul was declaring to his friends in Corinth and indeed that he was declaring to the whole world. God has done something. God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. This is not good advice. This is good news about something that's happened. Uh, this is not something that is potential for the future. If you believe it, it is something that has already happened that Paul now declares. God has reconciled the world. He's ended the war and everything is changed. It's a really dramatic announcement. Not all announcements are like that. Uh, in 2016, the Chicago Cubs uh, won the World Series. After 108 years of waiting, and as a lifelong Cubs fan, it was amazing to wake up on the morning of November 3rd and to see all over the newspapers, all over the media, Cubs win! I was so happy, it was like one of the greatest days of my life. I know it was really sad. But here's the thing, guess what? Nothing in my life actually changed. Nothing actually became different about my life because my life, as happy as I was, I was not implicated by that announcement. Nothing had to change in my life because that announcement ultimately wasn't about me. The announcement that Paul is making, this good news, that God's reconciled the world to himself in Christ, it implicates everyone. It implicates you. It implicates me. It implicates every person of every time and every place for all eternity. God has done something, and now Paul says, nothing will ever be the same for anyone. But here, here's the problem. Here's the problem that Paul's addressing in this text. For the Corinthians, at least, it didn't seem like anything had changed. They were just going on living exactly how they had always lived. Nothing was different. The shape of their life was essentially unchanged. And so Paul is writing to them, appealing to them, open wide your hearts. Open wide your hearts. Let this good news, let the good news of the gospel for us, what God has done for us, let this gospel really change you. Let it really make a difference in your life. And so, friends, this morning, this is a really challenging text. And if you're here today, and you are, 
then this challenge is being given to you. What about you? Has this announcement of what God has done, has it changed you? Is there anything different about your life because of what God has done in Jesus? Is your life any different than it wouldn't be otherwise? The good news of what God has done in Christ compels us to make some really clear decisions about how we are now going to live. Okay, so let's look at the shape of Paul's challenge this morning. We're gonna first look at that he wants us to recognize the risk, he wants to realize the cost, and then he wants us to respond with commitment. Okay, so first, he wants us to recognize the risk. Look at verses one and two. He says, as God's coworkers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain, for he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. So Paul uses a really interesting phrase here. I urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. What, what, is that, what does that mean? I actually didn't really know. I had to study it a bit. Let me just give you a silly example. So about a year ago, I went to Krispy Kreme to buy a couple dozen donuts for, yeah, I know, it, 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 I really don't care. It's just donuts a donut a donut, right? Um, so I went to Krispy Kreme, I bought a couple dozen donuts for a group that I'm in. And when I was there, um, the, the cashier said, hey, do you want to take a survey? It's like, fine, I'll take a survey. So he gave me a survey, it was like five questions. So I took a survey and she said, congratulations, you just won a dozen free donuts. And she gave me a coupon. She said, you can use this whenever you want to get a free dozen donuts whenever you want. I said, great. So I took it home, I put it on my dresser, and it's still there a year later, and it's expired. I checked this morning. <laughs> so that would be a case of me receiving the donuts in vain. I received them in vain. I was given the donuts. I had, I had them fully. I had every possibility to cast them in whenever I wanted to, and yet I never did anything about it. I received them in vain. Now, that's a really silly example, but actually pretty descriptive of what Paul is talking about. He's saying, look, God has done something. God has already given you everything that you ever need for life and fullness for all eternity. He has reconciled you to himself in Christ. But the risk is you never cash in. You never actually do anything about it. You never actually act on it. You never respond to it. You just sort of just let it sit there. You let grace expire in your life. He's saying that's the danger that you would receive God's grace. He's worried for the Corinthians because they have heard the good news of the gospel many times. They have like the best pastor in the world, the Apostle Paul. I mean, the guy wrote like half the New Testament. He saw and encountered the risen Jesus. These people have been pastored, they've been prodded, they've been preached to. And yet very little has changed in the lives of the Corinthians. They're living exactly the same way as everyone else. It's hard to distinguish them from anyone else who hasn't received the gospel. They have the same priorities, the same ambitions. They're pursuing the same like Corinthian dream as all of their neighbors around them. And Paul sees this as receiving God's grace in vain. You all have received this, he says, but the gospel has done nothing to actually change your life. So what about you? Have you received God's grace in vain? See, in when it comes to access to the gospel, we actually have much more advantage than the early Christians. You know, we have the freedom to worship whenever we want to. We have the entire Bible translated into our own language. We carry it around in these little supercomputers in our pocket all the time. 
We have churches in every corner. We have more resources available to us as Christians than the Corinthians could have ever even dreamed of. And yet the risk is no less great for us that we can receive God's grace in vain. And let me be clear what that means, y'all. To receive God's grace in vain doesn't mean to just reject Jesus and to reject the gospel outright. I'm guessing that if you're here, that's probably not you. Paul's talking about those who hear the gospel, understand the gospel, even believe the gospel, but without any impact on their lives. In fact, Philip Hughes writes this, for them to receive the grace of God in vain meant that their practice did not measure up to their profession as Christians, that their lives were so inconsistent as to constitute a denial of the gospel. So that's a very serious risk for all of us. And I just want to speak frankly with you, especially in our society, especially in the South, especially in Richmond, Virginia. It's just so easy to just be such a good churchgoer and to come to church and get your kids baptized and maybe to give some money and to maybe serve occasionally and to hear good preaching week by week and think that you're, you know, just think of yourself as a Christian, but you never actually let the gospel change you. Right? When it comes to your habits, your priorities, your values, the things that you're living for, the things that you're dying for, the priorities that you make, the way that you deal, the way you handle your money, the way you handle conflict, the way you treat those who are different from you. Nothing actually changes in you. Like the rocky soil in Jesus' parable where the seed never takes root, the gospel never actually produces change. If Paul were to look at your life and to see it compared to another, a neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, would he say the same thing to you? You are receiving God's grace in vain. So that's, that's the risk, and it's a, serious, it's a serious risk. Okay, you might say. Okay, I hear what you're saying. I'm, I'm ready to take my faith more seriously, preacher. Okay, well, listen, wait, Paul says. Before you do that, you need to realize what you're getting into because Paul wants you to be very clear-eyed about what it actually means to yoke yourself to a crucified Messiah. The Corinthians lived in a money-drenched, success-driven culture, and they love that stuff. They love popularity and fame and wealth and power. Sure, they believed in Jesus, but they actually followed after all the same things as everybody around them. And Paul is showing them that if they really want to follow a crucified Jesus, it means living a very different kind of life. And he wants them to be clear-eyed about that. And so he begins to describe what a life is like with following Jesus. And he begins with the trouble, a whole lot of trouble. Look at verses four and five. He says, rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance and troubles, hardships and distresses and beatings, imprisonments and riots and hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. Now, look, look, I don't know if any of y'all are in marketing or advertising, but this is not a good way to begin marketing a cause. Um, you usually don't lead with all of the pain. You know, like those drug ads that you see on TV and it's like two minutes of like all the glorious ways that this drug will transform your life. And then at the very end, very quickly, they say, oh, by the way, you might grow a third arm or something like that. You know, like at the very end, they say the risk. That's the way you market things. You lead with the positive. 
But for some reason, Paul is choosing to lead here with all of the trouble and all of the pain that he says, I want you to be clear about what it actually means to follow a crucified Messiah. He says, first of all, there's general troubles, afflictions and hardships and calamities. Then he says there's troubles that come because some people are just hostile to the good news about Jesus. He talks about beatings, imprisonments, and riots. He says, sometimes you'll be misunderstood. Sometimes you might get mistreated. And then he says, there's even trouble that we take on ourselves voluntarily, like labor, sleepless nights, hunger. Sometimes when you're following Jesus, you end up making your life a lot worse than it would be otherwise. (laughs) because you choose to take on the burdens and the pain of the world and the people around you and you, cho- you have to give more of yourself and give more of your time and give more of your money than you ever would be otherwise. And Paul says, this is costly. So whatever the case, Paul says, the road before you will not be easy or smooth. Jesus is not leading you around trouble. He's leading you in it. <laughs> like, okay. And then he goes on to verse six. And he says this, in purity, understanding, patience, and kindness, in the Holy Spirit, and in sincere love, and truthful speech, and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and the left. So now it begins to feel a little more positive. Paul begins to describe that in the midst of our troubles, we experience joy, we experience strength, and power, and love from the Holy Spirit. See, our tendency is to think that trouble equals God's disfavor, that God must not love us or he's punishing us. But what Paul says here is that actually in times of trouble, we experience a greater measure of God's love and kindness and care for us. And here's the final thing. He emphasizes that all of this is not either or, it's not hardship or joy, pain or glory, suffering or life. He says it's both and, look at verse eight. He says through glory and dishonor, Bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as imposters, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. Paul says, okay, you ready for a life of following Jesus? Here's what it is. It's a both and all the time. You're treated as imposters, you're unknown, you're misunderstood, you're mistreated, you're dying sometimes, you're punished, you're sorrowful, you're burdened, you're poor, you feel like you have nothing sometimes, and at the same time, you're true, you're well-known, you live, you're not killed, you're always rejoicing, you're making others rich, you're deeply satisfied, you have the fullest of knife, sometimes you feel like you're the luckiest person on the planet. It's not an either-or thing. It's, not a, it's a both-and thing. A life of following Jesus is more trouble than you would ever choose, but more joy than you could ever Imagine it is a life like his. Crucifixion and resurrection, joy and sorrow, power and weakness. You ready for that? And some of y'all are like, I'm out. (laughs) I'm out. This does not sound like the kind of life that I have been promised. (laughs) Well, listen, listen. One of the best things about my job is that I get to think about death a lot. And I know that sounds kind of weird, but um, I I, I get to be with people who are dying. Yesterday I sat with a woman who was dying. I get to talk to people who are dying. I get to, to be with families as they grieve 
their loved ones who have died. And what happens when you think about death a lot and you have to encounter death a lot is that you actually begin to think about what actually matters in life. It, it, there is nothing that is more perspective bringing than looking at death. And I'll tell you, I have been to a lot of uh, memorial service. I've, been a lot of, I've probably been to more funerals and more, more, more memorial services than almost anyone in this room except for maybe John Daniel. He's been a pastor much longer than I have. And I will tell you, I have never once, I have never once heard anyone get up at a funeral to eulogize the person who has died. And I've never heard a person say, you know what? They succeeded in avoiding pain. They, they minimize their suffering and maximize their happiness. And, and they lived a life utterly devoted to their own comfort, wealth, and security. What a well-lived life. Nobody has ever said that, and yet this is what we are told life is supposed to be about every single day. So why does anybody say that? Because we all know deep down that's not actually what life is. What people get up and say at funerals is they say, yeah, that guy, he suffered, but he loved. That lady, she endured great hardship, but she persevered in hope. That guy, he went through it, but he found great power and strength within it. See, that's what we know is that life in the end is, is not uh, about avoiding suffering, but it is about finding greatness within it. And this is the life that God is offering you in the gospel. Yeah, it's not a life you might want or choose, but it's a life that everybody deep down really wants, a life of human greatness, a life the way that God designed it to be power, even a weakness. So are you ready for that? I hope you are, because that's the life that really matters. So we, he wants us to, to recognize the risk that you would receive God's grace in vain. He wants you to realize the cost, to actually realize that following Jesus is not easy. It's hard, but it's better than anything. And then finally, he wants us to respond with commitment. He says in verse two, behold, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He's saying, look, a decision has to be made. And it has to be made again and again, right now in this present moment. It is always the time today to get off the fence and commit your life wholly to God. So he ends with this interesting paragraph in verse 14. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? He uses a really unusual word here for the devil that scholars aren't really sure why. Maybe it was common in Corinth. Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, this is a well-known passage that has often been, I think, pretty badly misapplied. Uh, you've, I've sometimes heard this passage used by Christians to justify separating from fellow Christians who have slightly different beliefs. That's obviously not what Paul is doing here. Sometimes I've heard this used to justify Christians separating from people who aren't Christians. Like, you know, only having Christian friends or only using Christian electricians or only listening to, you know, Christian music or something like that. 
That's obviously also not what Paul is doing here because that would contradict many other things that Paul said about what it means to be friends with those who don't know Jesus. And so what we know this means is simply by looking at the context. All of the imagery here relates to idol worship. We know that idolatry was a real problem in Corinth. We know that from the first letter that Paul is often trying to counsel them about what to do about food sacrifice to idols. Apparently, some of the Corinthian Christians were continuing to go to pagan temples for worship, even as they went to church and worship Jesus. And so Paul is using this analogy to say, guys, it's not working. This doesn't work. You can't do that. You can't stay on the fence like this. You can't be in two marriage beds. You can't say you're a Christian and also give your heart to a false God. You can't follow Jesus and follow the practices of the world. You've got to commit. Now's the time. You got to decide, am I going to be unequally yoked with Jesus and idols or am I going to stick with him, worship him alone, center my life around him, resolve to live for him, to please him, to bring my life into alignment fully with Jesus and his upside down kingdom. He's calling them now to commit. And he ends this section with this stirring exhortation. He says, therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, holiness is such a churchy word. It's like a bad word, right? Holy, right? It, it, we almost use it as an insult. Oh, she's so holier than that. It means like she's self-righteous. She's, you know, superior. She's condescending. At best, holy means like someone who keeps all the rules. Well, I want to be clear. That's not what Paul means when he says holiness here. In light of what he's saying, Paul is talking about devotion. Holiness is, comes from the root word wholeness. So it's about an attitude of the heart that says to God, I'm wholly yours. I want to give myself wholly to you and to your purpose. If you, if you say to someone, hey, you can have my house, but I'm going to live in the second floor and you can't ever come there. Well, you're not really giving in your house, you are still, as long as you're retaining control of a major portion of your house, it still belongs to you. And yet many of us do this with God. We give him, we keep, retain whole floors, rooms, closets. And Paul is saying to him, look, holiness means you say to God, I take my hands off my life. I give, I sign the whole deed of the whole house over to you, withholding no room, no floor, no closet. Come in, it's yours. It now belongs to you. Paul's saying, now it's time to get off the fence and give your life wholly to God who loves you. Now, why would you do this? Because you're going to get punished if you don't? Or because God is some cruel taskmaster who demands everything? No. Look what the text says. Look right there, friends. It says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves. Thank God it does not say, let us purify ourselves so we can have the promises. Do you see the big difference? You know, I, I say this to you a lot, and I hope that you're hearing me, that religion, the principle of religion is I obey, therefore I am accepted. Religion and morality is grounded in guilt and shame and fear of punishment. The gospel is utterly opposite because it does not say I obey, therefore I'm accepted. It says I am accepted. Therefore, I obey. 
You have the promises. God has reconciled to you in Christ. God has forgiven you. God has accepted you. God has given you eternal blessings in Jesus. So now respond by giving your life to him. Give yourself wholly to him. I'm not a slave. I'm not a servant. I'm not an employee. God is not a mean boss. He's a, he's a, he's a loving parent, and I'm a child. It says in verse 18, we're sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty. A child obeys, at least in a healthy family. A child obeys not to earn love, but because she has it already. So Paul says, be wholly committed to God because he is already wholly committed to you. The reason we strive to be holy is not to get God's acceptance, but because we already have it. We are God's possession in Christ. We've been made his sons and daughters. We're bound to him forever. The only appropriate response to what God has done in wholly giving, to him, giving himself to us in Christ is to wholly give ourselves to him. That's why the hymn says, love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. So brothers and sisters, men and women, boys and girls, something has happened. Something has happened to change the world and the future forever. God has reconciled the world to himself in Christ. Don't receive God's grace in vain. Let it change you. Let the gospel in. God is inviting you to life that is truly life, a life that matters. Will you give yourself wholly to him as he has given himself wholly to you? Let's pray. Let me just take a moment to Speak to God in whatever way you sense is the right thing to say to God right now. Thank you, Jesus, that you truly gave yourself wholly to us. We know that the only thing that makes sense, the only way to respond to that is that we might get off the fence and give ourselves wholly to you. We pray, God, that you would help us to not receive your grace in vain. We confess the ways, I confess the way that I know and believe the good news of Jesus and yet I really live my life so many times just however I want to live it. And I pray that we would gaze upon the goodness of your love for us and that we would respond by giving ourselves wholly to you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name who loves us. Amen.